Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kyla Houston, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Heyo. And I'm here with Robert Miller. Howdy. Who you guys might remember as uh, one of our frequent guests this year. So we decided that it really wouldn't be an end of year episode if we didn't uh, we didn't have Robbie join us. So welcome, welcome <laughs> back. Kyla, this one's the holiday episode. <laughs> no, but it's technically the end of the year, too. There's only one more episode after this. That's true. That's true. <laughs> the penultimate episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. But also, I'm. Uh, we we said we would drink for this episode, and I thought that it meant that we would drink before we started. But the other two thought it, that we would drink during the episode. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we're on different uh, playing fields right now. <laughs> it should even out by the end, I would think. <laughs> yeah, we'll play catch up. So everyone has to do a shot every time we mention climate change. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, my story's about workers' rights. <laughs> uh, okay, so yes, let me just describe quickly what this episode is going to be about. Because last year we did a whole episode on having an ethical Christmas. And we considered doing that again this year, as we had kind of teased it last year. But what we decided to do instead was kind of go for a more Christmas Carol themed episode where each of us would represent a ghost of Christmas past, present and future, but not really Christmas. I, I actually didn't incorporate Christmas into mine at all. If you guys did, then, you know, cool, but <laughs> I didn't. No, I sort of interpreted it as like ethical consumption ghosts instead of Christmas ghosts. Yes, that's kind of how I uh, interpreted it as well. So Kristen is the ghost of ethical consumption past. Ooh. I am the ghost of <laughs> ethical consumption present. And uh, Robbie will be our ghost of ethical consumption future. And hopefully it's a little bit better than the actual ghost of the future in A Christmas Carol, where it just shows you like a grave. And you're like, cool, I guess that's where we're going. <laughs> yeah, ooga booga. <laughs> it's been too long since I've seen this play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely thought that the ghost of Christmas future was supposed to be optimistic. I think because I've only watched like parodies of A Christmas Carol in like recent history and haven't actually watched this, the original in over a decade. <laughs> Kristen, do you uh, did you want to uh, <laughs> reinterpret my description, or does that kind of cover what uh, this episode's going to be about? No, that was pretty much what I wrote. So good job. <laughs> do you want to get us started? Sure. Uh, so I am the ghost of ethical consumption past. Um, I'll stop doing ghost <laughs> voices. I swear. <laughs> no, please continue. Um, so the the story that I found because we. We had said we were going to try as much as we could to find optimistic stories because it's the holidays and people can't go see their families for the holidays. And that's depressing enough. So we would try not to depress you with this episode was the aim. Mm -hmm. I think I've heard from Kyla that she may not have succeeded. but <laughs> It was easy enough to find a positive story in the past. So I tried to do that. And uh, the story that I found is it's the story of the, the National Consumer League's white label campaign. So I'm going to tell you what that is. Uh, so essentially, uh, the white label is an ethical consumer label. It was created in the 1890s by the National Consumers League, um, and it was created under the leadership of a badass whose name is Florence Kelly. So I'm going to tell you about who Florence Kelly is, what the National Consumers League is, and what the white label is. 
And I think just like before we get into the story, it's um, a good story to tell because it gives us an example of how consumer power can be partnered with labor activism and lobbying to create genuine change. It also offers a roadmap for um, for achieving change in the future um, now that there's been sort of a return to sweatshop conditions under globalization, because this was sort of like the first wave of sweatshops um, and consumer labels to address that. So it's optimistic, but also about sweatshops. I'm going to thread that needle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I'll start by talking about uh, Florence Kelly, who is super cool. Uh, Florence Kelly was a feminist, a social democrat, and uh, basically an all-around badass. She was one of the leading figures in America's progressive era, which is sort of um, a period of American history that saw the expansion of state authority into the workplace. So if you think of like modern workplace like laws, a lot of them at least have their early roots in the progressive era, even if like more of them were sort of like firmly established under um, FDR and the New Deal and stuff like that. So Florence Kelly, um, she had a fairly privileged upbringing as far as it goes. She was the daughter of a pro-labor congressman. Her parents were both abolitionists, and they both supported Kelly's interest in education and women's rights. So from a young age, uh, Florence Kelly was immersed in social activism, and that was kind of always something that she knew. So Kelly grew up in Philly, and she graduated from Cornell, or rather from Sage College at Cornell because sexism. (laughs) It was super rare for women to go to university at the time, and uh, she wanted to go into grad studies, and she tried to do so at the University of Pennsylvania, but they would not let her in. So she instead went to the University of Zurich, which is one of a few European universities that at the time admitted women. And during that time, she basically increasingly became frustrated by the barriers to women's participation in public life, and that prompted her to become a socialist, because a lot of socialists were also feminists at the time, so those kind of interests sort of grew hand in hand for her. And as she sort of came to become more economically left-wing, she became increasingly critical of her father's political compromises, even though he was a pro-labor congressman. Uh, And she did, for a period of time, cut off contact with her family in Philadelphia. Around that same time, uh, Florence Kelly married a socialist who was a med student from Russia. Um, They had three children, and her family moved to New York. And uh, she did eventually reestablish contact with her family just before her father died, and that kind of um, reinvigorated her focus on labor rights, and uh, she became an expert on child labor during that time. Florence Kelly's husband became abusive in a a period after that, and uh, she basically took the kids to Chicago. um, And in a turn of events that I think is pretty awesome, like she's experiencing this, this terrible situation, she leaves for Chicago, and she basically immediately becomes like a huge activist in Chicago. Um, she joined a community of women reformers at a place that was called Hull House. And she very soon after that became a leader in Chicago's anti-sweatshop movement. One of her first contributions was a report called The Sweating System of Chicago, which was written for the Illinois Bureau of Statistics of Labor. And that report established the need for government intervention to stop labor abuse in sweatshops. Uh, I just want to say there's this description that somebody has of Florence Kelly, and I think if anybody said anything nearly as nice um, about me, I would would be super happy. So I just want (laughs) to say this quote because I think it's amazing. 
So Kelly was once described as the toughest customer in the reform riot, the finest rough and tumble fighter for the good life for others that Hull House ever knew. Any weapon was a good weapon in her hand, evidence, argument, irony, or invective, which I think is just awesome. She writes this report, and it becomes one of several pressures um, that led to this government inquiry into sweatshops and tenement house labor. And the committee um, heard from a bunch of experts, including Florence Kelly, um, and it eventually ended up uh, recommending anti-sweatshop legislation that was really close to legislation that Florence Kelly herself had drafted. And that was eventually passed as the Factory and Workshop Bill of 1893. So it did a bunch of things, including establishing eight hours as the legal limit for the working day for women, uh, restricting child labor, and creating a factory inspection office uh, to which Kelly was then appointed, which is kind of like the eight-hour workday for women was a huge um, part of the legislation. It was really controversial because at the time... There wasn't like mandated work, like there wasn't a mandated work day or work week, at least not federally and not like statewide. But um, there were sort of like certain pockets of workers that had those protections and it was increasingly becoming common. So the reason it was applied to women specifically was that um, women and children were particularly vulnerable to um, like they were. It was a lot harder for them to unionize and to exert collective action because they were already restricted to so like few occupations in the workforce that you couldn't really move to another industry that had union workers or something like that. So it was sort of seen that the normal mechanism of trying to form a union and collective bargaining wasn't really going to work for women, at least at the time when they were so constrained in the workforce. So the idea was basically that um, there was a legal mandated um, working day was necessary. And uh, that became hugely controversial. So after this, this legislation goes through, Kelly is selected to become the chief factory inspector for the state of Illinois. And uh, so she's like um, going through and, and inspecting sweatshops and other workplaces to make sure they're following state laws. She, for the first time, decides that they're going to actually enforce that eight-hour workday that had just been passed into law. And she ends up suing several businesses that aren't meeting the standard. That becomes this big thing. It goes up to the Illinois Supreme Court, and it ultimately is found unconstitutional. And the reason makes me so angry. It's because of, like, the Supreme Court found that it violated the Equal Protection Clause, which I just think is super fucked up. So Kelly was frustrated by that, too. And that led her to go to law school. She got a law degree. And uh, she eventually took on her role as the head of the newly formed National Consumers League. So she took on that role in 1899. And the National Consumers League uh, became the leading advocacy organization for protective labor organization. She remained in that role until she died in 1932. Kelly was instrumental in establishing a national minimum wage, legislating maximum working hours, and creating the U.S. Children's Bureau. So she did, like, she helped to achieve a lot of really important labor milestones that we still think about today. She was also like not only involved in the National Consumers League, she was also one of the founding members of the NAACP. So she was really an anti-racism advocate. Um, she was also a founding member of the Women's International League of Peace. She founded the National Labor Committee, and she was the vice president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. 
So really just like um, a woman that is working in a lot of different progressive causes at the same time and who was super effective in achieving the objectives that she set out to achieve. All right. So that's Fran- that's Florence Kelly. <laughs> I'm obsessed with her. She's great. Yeah. There were several moments where I'm like, the hard part about being on a podcast is that you can't see me doing like the spirit fingers <laughs> doing all this cool stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. That's neat. Now that we've sort of got a sense of who she is, I want to talk about the white label movement in the National Consumers League. Um, but I think it's important to just set the context a little bit. Listeners might remember when we did our fast fashion series that we talked about sweatshops and their transformation from the Industrial Revolution to today. But just as a reminder, so in the 1830s, there's um, the invention of something called the lock stitch sewing machine, and it led to the mechanization of clothes making. So like by the end of the 1800s, a lot of people are working in unsafe and exploitative conditions at garment factories around the Western world. And uh, Florence Kelly called this the sweating system. Uh, I'm just going to quote from her own description of this system and its causes. The sweating system is one of respectable antiquity and is a surviving remnant of the industrial system which preceded the factory system when industry was chiefly conducted on the piece price plan in small shops or the homes of workers. Machinery developed the modern factory and concentrated labor, but in the tailoring trades, the practice of sending out garments ready cut to be made by journeymen at their homes and at a price per garment has survived and is still maintained in custom work in which the journeyman is still a skilled tailor who makes the whole garment. The modern demand for ready-made clothing in great quantities and of the cheaper grades has, however, led to much subdivision um, of the labor on garments and with it, the substitution of the contractor or sweater in uh, which a group of employees um, in separate processes for the individual tailor, like it is there in place of the individual tailor skilled in all of them. So it's it's sort of like um, almost like the precursor to what we see today in fast fashion that um, you have this sort of these subcontracted factories uh, where people are producing one element of the production process rather than like a tailor putting together a whole garment. And that's what causes the the sweatshop system to take hold. Also the rising demand for cheap garments as you have sort of like shifting class structures. All right, the National Consumers League. So the Consumers League movement started in New York in 1896, and it began with a small group of women headed by um, Josephine Shaw Lowell, Uh, And they were basically campaigning to set a fair wage for sales girls and cashiers at department stores. So these were like predominantly well-off women who are going into department stores and they're seeing that the cashiers and sales girls that they're dealing with aren't being treated very fairly. And they, they start to sort of like carry out activism to improve the working conditions of those sales girls. So that's the first sort of spark of the movement. But then by the end of the 1800s, Consumers Leagues had become a powerful force in American politics. Consumers Leagues were basically like they were primarily women's organizations and they fought for the welfare of consumers and workers who had little voice or little power in the marketplace or the workplace. They especially fought for women and children who were less able to unionize and so to achieve gains through collective action. The rise of Consumers League essentially marked the beginning of a new era of um, political power. So 
It was the appearance for the first time of the consumer as such in the national scene. Um, and for the first time, this group was sort of like articulating political positions, presenting facts and supporting specific legislation. Uh, and they, they did so in order to sort of like relieve the consciences of those who didn't want to buy the products of sweatshop and child labor. So that's sort of what the Consumers League movements are doing. It started in New York, as I mentioned, with that like department store activism, but Consumers Leagues soon spread to like Massachusetts, Illinois, Pennsylvania. Within like the first five years after that, it starts happening. And then the National Consumers League gets founded in 1898. Florence Kelly is appointed as the first secretary in 1899. They did have a president. It was a white guy. Don't remember who he was. He didn't do very much. So I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> that checks out. Yeah, he just like had the purse strings, I guess. But anyway, under Kelly's tenure as the first general secretary of the NCL, she established 64 consumer leagues across America. And that was sort of like her first priority. So she she traveled sort of all over the country, aiming on building a grassroots movement that's going to have these consumer leagues operating across a bunch of different cities. And by 1906, there were 63 locals in 20 states with 7,000 members. So she had done a pretty good job of building a network. The NCL's early work concentrated on influencing consumer behavior, um, but then the organization, as it got more powerful, it expanded its, its work to focus on legal reform, lobbying, and defending protective legislation for workers against constitutional challenges. It's sort of a shift in its uh, mission over time. And the NCL, um, it continued throughout the 20th century. It actually, it does still exist today, but throughout the 20th century, it sort of existed as a broad-based consumer protection organization. And it's advocated successfully for things like um, federal meat inspection laws, workplace safety standards, unemployment compensation, and fraud protection. Pretty cool group. I don't know. Do you guys have interim thoughts before I go to the white label campaign? That's, that's actually really impressive in terms of building a grassroots campaign nationally in that short of time. Oh, yeah. That's mm -hmm. your specialty, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we try to do, I guess. But yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I'm Kyla, you'll remember when we talked about Operation Breadbasket, and it was sort of like a civil rights version of the white label campaign, but it mostly focused in like a couple of cities. Uh, there was never like a big national network. So I, I just wonder what would have happened if it if there had been an Operation Breadbasket in every major American city. Yeah. And I was thinking about her definition of like the sweatshop as well. I and mean, it's very much, you know, she did the reading. It's the way that she describes it is very consistent with a lot of socialist thought on how capitalist industry sort of like forms itself in terms of that division of labor and de-skilling of workers and fragmentation of the production process. Yeah. She was actually... um. So I didn't mention this in the background, but she was actually pretty big in like socialist intellectualism at the time. She has a big translation of Engels' work that was um, that she put together when she was in school and has sort of like written stuff on ethics and uh, socialism as well. So definitely she she knew her stuff for sure. <laughs> that's really cool because that's another thing that can sometimes be a little bit rare, especially in like a modern context is people who are both you know, going out there and having those like very academic conversations and then also being able to organize a national grassroots campaign in five years. That's pretty stellar. 
Yeah, she knows her stuff, but is also practical for sure. Uh, so I've, I've, I'm going to start my discussion of the white label campaign with a Florence Kelly quote, because she's my fave, as we know. So she says, to live means to buy, to buy means to have power, and to have power means to have responsibility. So that's essentially what the, the white label campaign was about. Damn, I like that. That's a really yeah, good quote. That's really good. Yeah. During the NCL's early years, one of its primary tool was a consumer label called the white label. And uh, the white label was essentially a voluntary ethical standard. So employers whose labor practices met the NCL's standards for fairness and safety, they were granted the ability to use a white label. And the NCL urged consumers to support companies that had white labels while supporting them or while encouraging them to boycott those that failed to earn the white label. The white label, um, it's called, I wondered why it was called this. Um, it was essentially because uh, I had mentioned those um, New York City Consumers League people that had fought for department store girls to get better wages. They had done that through something called a whitelist that they had established with department stores. Basically, the idea was uh, they came up with a whitelist um, so that they would pat on the back good companies rather than putting out a blacklist of firms to boycott because it made it less likely that they were going to be sued in the act of doing so. That's why it's called the white label. It's based on that sort of historical background. And the idea is um, sort of rewarding good companies, which I think is fascinating because that's more or less the approach that like most voluntary standards take today. There definitely are like boycott campaigns happening all the time. But like if you look at the professionalized uh, like NGOs that are they're trying to get transparency in the supply chain, stuff like that. They do focus most of the time on rewarding good actors rather than punishing bad actors. So long history of that. <laughs> so in order to qualify for a white label, manufacturers had to submit to an inspection and they had to meet um, a few conditions. So one was that they obeyed state factory laws. Uh, that all goods were made on the premises. And the reason for that was they wanted to prevent subcontractors who are then using sweatshops. Uh, no working of overtime, because oftentimes people would end up being like working like 12 hour days. And uh, children under 16, not employed. So not like overly broad, but for the time that was, um, those were pretty strong standards. Uh, and still not being met in today's garment shops. So great. So the white label campaign, it appealed to middle class consumers through emphasis on the public health threat that was posed uh, by using products that were made in disease ridden tenements. So the idea was like you would sort of push consumers to think that if they were buying their garments from a sweatshop that like they themselves might get sick from it. There was serendipitous timing because that was actually around the same time that there was a new germ theory of disease transmission that came out. And so it sort of lent credence to that view, right? That people, people were suddenly very concerned about germs and suddenly worried about like the flea-ridden people working in, uh, in factories for their own like instrumental reasons um, as much as for moral reasons. So this is why ethical consumption isn't working so well in 2020. People <laughs> appear to just love getting diseases. It's core to their freedom. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, I was reading some of like Florence Kelly's factory inspections. And to be honest, like I can see why this was a super compelling argument, because like 
I almost retched a couple of times listening to these like like reading these stories of like kids in candy factories that like have all kinds of diseases and they've got like open sores and they're handling the candy and stuff like (laughs) really gross yeah so at the same time um like not only is there this sort of germ theory that makes people sort of more predisposed to caring about um health risks from getting garments in sweatshops um but at the same time you're starting to see sort of like um worker agitation that's happening um, in factories around um, diseases that that are rampant in sweatshops and other kinds of factories. And in particular, like tuberculosis was all over the place in sweatshops. So those kind of dual narratives are working together to get middle-class consumers, and in particular, middle-class women behind the idea of supporting the white label. So the the health argument was really important for winning over middle-class consumers, but the white label tried to reach beyond this to address goals that were important for workers, so enforcing state factory laws, preventing subcontracting, prohibiting overtime, and ending child labor. So those are all things that the workers' movements also wanted, and that was intentional. I, I do want to talk a little bit about race and the white label. So the white label drew on the example of a union label, which was used in the late 1800s in San Francisco. And that label was used to discourage the purchase of cigars that were made by Chinese immigrants. So, yeah, it's not great. (laughs) The white label was primarily speaking to the middle class. And they like there was nothing inherently racist about the white label particularly because the majority of um, sweatshop workers were sort of like immigrants, mostly from like different parts of Europe, but still um, at the time not considered white. Um, so like in a certain sense, the, the white label was, was promoting racial justice because it was very much trying to remedy this harms, these harms, but it's still sort of like wrapped up in this problematic um, connection between sort of like the union movement and like the sense of whiteness and racism um, because, you know, white trade unions um, were trying to discourage the patronage of non-union shops. And in many cases, sort of like drawing on these racist um, narratives to do so. I don't think that's like a problem with the white label specifically, but I do think um, it's uh, it highlights how like progressive era labor movements are connected to whiteness and to racism in in a lot of complicated ways. It's interesting too. I wonder if the fact that they lent, like they leaned so heavily on the health consequences of sweatshops for the consumers is part of the reason why it didn't have like durability. Why a hundred years later we still have the same problems because it's a lot like in a world that is generally more germ-free than it was at the turn of the 20th century. Like if you base your campaign on don't buy clothes from sweatshops because they might make you sick, that there's a way to for like the sweatshop owners to get around that by just convincing people that actually our clothes are safe. You don't have to worry about it because apparently you still don't care about the people making them. Yeah, so I think um, I agree with that point in principle that like there are limitations to making the um, to making ethical movements to be more about health and stuff like that. And you can definitely see that in like um, arguments for eating a plant based diet today and stuff like that. But on the other hand, I do think actually, not that the white label did this specifically, but consumer movements and anti-sweatshop movements did to a very large degree succeed. They Sweatshops had been, at least in the garment industry, had been like all but 
abolished um, until globalization moved them offshore, right? So like you have a long period from like the post-war, post-World War II era into like the 1990s where this problem doesn't really exist anymore. It's not just because of the white label, but like um, <laughs> it's, it's really like offshoring and globalization that brings the problem of sweatshops back. And also like the fact that um, we were in like a new era of neoliberalism. So now there are sweatshops um, in Western countries again. Um, they just um, aren't legal, you know. Anyway, <laughs> we talked about this in our fast fashion episode. People can go back to that if they want a longer discussion. Anyway, um, so the National Consumers League is, um, they're just starting up. They're trying to get this consumer label off the ground, but they have limited capacity. So they had to sort of make a strategic choice about, um, are they going to do a wider range of products in a limited geographic area, which is sort of what um, Operation Breadbasket chose with the civil rights era? Or are you going to choose a more specific set of products and do it over a large geographic area? And the NCL chose to go with that latter option. So they applied um, the label to basically garments that middle class women would purchase frequently. So it was like a, a bunch of different kinds of garments that were basics and they were all sort of essentially underwear. So things like corsets, um, skirt and stocking supporters petticoats, um, things like that. They applied the white label to all of those things um, as they were being produced throughout um, America. They start to go, and at the height of their success, uh, they had 60 licensed factories from which people could buy garments, and they had a partnership with at least one major department store, so they were starting to get quite a lot of traction. The white label's success essentially stemmed from convincing people of three different things. So the first one was giving people a new understanding of the consumer and their economic centrality. So like this, um, it's a new con conception of people being consumers and having this power. And then from that, um, giving people the sort of new knowledge about specific working conditions within communities. So educating people now that they know they're consumers and they have power, here's what's going on um, within sweatshops. And then third, allowing people, giving people sort of like the means to put their new knowledge to political use um, and to sort of try to implement legislation to design to improve working conditions. So like tying the um, consumption choices to the political inherently. Undergirded by this new understanding of their own economic position, um, by the new knowledge about these communities and by new capacity for political action, the consumers that supported the white label campaign effectively became the, the vehicle through which the NCL emerged as the single most politically effective organization of middle class women in the decades before World War I. So they really become a huge voice, uh, not just because of this consumer movement, but because of that and then also the political lobbying they're doing at the same time. The white label campaign also sort of improved upon um, existing anti-sweatshop movements. So existing anti-sweatshop campaigns had focused a lot on narratives of pity and fear. Uh, and instead, the NCL, with its white label campaign, emphasized morality. So they argued that consumer choices entailed responsibility and put that in the center of their narratives. So I've got another quote from Kelly here. We can have cheap underwear righteously made and clean, or we can have cheap underwear degradingly made and unclean. Henceforth, we're responsible for our choice. And that was essentially the narrative that they put forward. That's pretty great. 
Yeah, so purchasing basically became a moral act, and uh, the consumer had a duty to recognize her direct relationship with the producer, to learn about producer's working conditions, and to limit her purchases um, to goods that are made under moral conditions. That's something that's a lot more complicated today, but it was relatively easy to make that case back in the early 1900s for garments. And the white label, it facilitated consumers in their duty by providing trustworthy knowledge. So that voluntary standard gave them a clear signal that they could use to to enact their morality. And they also, they drew on like factory inspections as well as other sort of investigatory techniques and drawing data from governments in order to sort of provide that trustworthy knowledge. So promoting the white label was typically the first project when there was a new um, consumer league that was set up in a location. That was the first thing that members would rally around, which was really good for establishing the organization itself. Um, And it also created new civic spaces where women worked to expand state responsibility. So it's sort of this new political area in which women are getting involved um, outside of like the home, you know, this is a, a women involved in like a public space to a new degree. Um, And that helped also to forge relationships, um, with, within women in these communities, um, but as well as they're sort of working on the white label campaign, they're forging closer relationships with factory inspectors. Um, they're creating greater public awareness um, by like interacting with other women's civics groups. And they're also sort of like lobbying for productive legislation and so um, building relationships with um, union groups. All right, last little bit, I wanna talk about the legacy of the white label campaign. So the White Label campaign ended in 1918, and the reason that it ended was essentially around that time, there was some speculation that there was going to be a union label put forward in garment production, and uh, the NCL didn't want to stand in the way of a union label. They didn't want to be a barrier to it. So the White Label ended, and I'm not sure exactly what happened with the union label, but I, I can't imagine it had that many legs because it didn't show up in any of the readings that I read, and I've never heard of it. So, oh no, <laughs> I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe I'm just missing something. People can tune me in on that if I am. But, but truthfully, by like 1918, the NCL had already shifted its focus, and so the white label was no longer a huge part of their uh, work. So, essentially, with the white label, they garnered a lot of political power and built that grassroots base. And then after that, they moved um, to sort of lobby for political change through the courts and through the legislatures. That became their main set of tactics. And so in this sense, we can kind of think about the white label campaign as an opening wedge for its sort of more general strategy to improve workers' rights. The NCL did briefly revive the white label in the mid-1920s, a time that was not so great for labor legislation. Uh, didn't look like they were going to get a lot done under like the administrations that were in power then. So this time the white label was applied to the candy industry, and I couldn't find that much on how well it did. So I think probably didn't have that much longevity, but they did try to set it up again. And uh, essentially for the NCL, the white label campaigns were like, they were about changing consumer behavior, but they were even more so about publicizing the causes that they were supporting. So The idea was that the label spread messages around working conditions and it spread it in a way that sort of appealed to a wide group of um, like of middle class people. So they were able to sort of like improve their influence. The NCL does still exist today. Um, They continue to work for promoting a fair marketplace for workers and consumers. 
They still do a lot of good work, but I kind of think Florence Kelly would think they were a little bit lame, <laughs> if I'm being really honest. <laughs> uh, so a lot of their work is on like fraud and consumer literacy. It's like a lot more, I don't know, it just, it's a lot less radical and a lot more sort of like um, middle of the road, like what you expect a charity to do. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And that's interesting too, as a process that you have this like very agitated grassroots campaign that decides we're going to settle down and do legislative work. And then, you know, a couple decades later, you sit there and like, well, this sounds kind of lame. I mean, they did really good work. Like, um, I, I mean, it's kind of hard to say how much of this is like a success of the NCL because like FDR just gets elected. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> a lot of the laws they wanted did end up getting passed. Um, it's just sort of like they they seem to have kind of lost their ethos a little bit in the last little while and become sort of more centrist. So I don't know. <laughs> but they did good. That's my story. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was quite cool. Yeah. All right. Woo. <laughs> That's cool. I liked that story. Yeah. Except for the ending. You could have you could have picked a story with a better ending, Kristen. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, this is just a good transition into into Kyla's uh section on the misery of the present. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I picked so I picked the present because I thought Kristen would have a, a good time doing the past and that the past re would require more research, which is more her wheelhouse. And I was right. Uh, Kristen just took up the entire length of a regular podcast telling us all about the amazing work of the NCL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I did warn you, though. <laughs> you did. You did. You did. I was warned. Well, and don't worry, because not a lot of really good things happened this year. I don't know if anyone... <laughs> It has been. I I texted Kristen that earlier, and she she very uh, wittingly responded, "What are you talking about? Twenty twenty has famously been a great year." <laughs> oh. I for one hope we're gonna hear like a redemption narrative about murder hornets. That's what I'm expecting. <laughs> oh, that would have really lined up with my obsession with bees and why I refuse to do a bee episode because. <laughs> I feel like a bee episode would really bum me out. So I did not talk about murder hornets, even though I, I, I mean, I'm sure they're very important to the ecology of like their ecosystem. But no, I didn't go that way. <laughs> I, oh God, I started by like looking up positive changes in 2020 and not, not, a, that wasn't a very good Google search to start out with. I eventually ran across an article that basically said that New Zealand had declared a climate emergency and committed to a carbon neutral government by 2025. And I was like, oh, that's nice. I bet climate change policies have improved in the last year because 2020 has really been the year where people are basically everybody is like, yes, climate change is real and it's very bad and we should probably do something about it. I know that people have been saying that for like a few years now, and there was the Paris Agreement. Like a hundred years, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean that, but also like <laughs> the the policymakers all signed like the Paris Agreement recently. So, but I felt like this year, really everyone was like, oh shit, like there's so many hurricanes and <laughs> New Orleans is going to be underwater soon. So maybe we should do something. So I decided to kind of look at where policy is for climate change this year, thinking that, oh, surely 
steps have been taken because COVID left such a big opening for government spending and investing in green energy and stuff like that. So, LOL. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I think you two might already know where I'm going to be going with this, but uh, I did focus on positive stories which is why my uh, section is going to be a lot shorter than Kristen's. <laughs> this is good because we're at like the 40-minute mark or something. No, we're fine. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> special episodes can be longer. That's a, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> so I did my research very piecemeal, and I did not form it into a cohesive narrative. So I'm just going to read you a bunch of positive things that I found in no particular order. Gear gear up. Enjoy yourself. Actually, I think that's very much in line with uh, uh, the ghost of Christmas present which is just like we're at this person's house now and you're like okay i guess this is happening so perfect kyla revealing herself to be the only person who read the assigned book <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what i did instead of actually researching actually no do you know what i did instead of actually researching this is a complete tangent that we don't have time for but i read devolution by max brooks hmm what's that <laughs> it's so max brooks wrote world war z which is maybe one of my favorite horror books? it was a gooder yeah i don't yeah. know if it counts as horror i mean it is very scary because it's like oh yeah look at all these governments that did nothing in the face of a pandemic and i'm like cool <laughs> cool story a little too on the nose <laughs> devolution is kind of his version of like a big a bigfoot story and i very much enjoyed it so that's what i did instead of uh the homework <laughs> sorry uh, the first thing I have here is that I found articles from uh, doctors and architects that that are calling for action on climate change. Uh, in one of those articles, I found a, a statistic that said that in 2018, 296,000 people died from heat waves. And, and doctors are like, well, this is pretty bad. We don't we have enough to deal with without also dealing with like people dying from heat waves and asthma. And also if there's a concurrent disaster like a wildfire or a hurricane or a pandemic yeah 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 or a pandemic yeah i was um like a while back i was talking to this guy who works in um our provincial government it's like energy department looking at climate change one of the things the province is really worried about is what happens if you have like heat waves that cause power outages um, because in the city of Toronto, um, which is Canada's biggest city, there are a whole bunch of people that live in these like glass condo buildings oh, yeah. that will be uninhabitable if you don't have air conditioning. And so like there are potentially like hundreds of thousands of people that would have to evacuate. Well, that actually kind of ties into what the architects were saying, because I found a really cool article from the BBC that was talking about how architects are saying, you know, instead of tearing down old energy inefficient buildings, we should just pay the money to upgrade them because the cost of building a new efficient building to the environment, the carbon cost, it's like these buildings are going to take a hundred years to pay for themselves for their carbon like footprint. And an older building, by the time it's getting torn down, I think, I can't, you know what, I'm not going to quote the article. There was a lot of like statistics, but basically the architects are saying, it's more efficient just to upgrade an old building than to build a new efficient one. And they're like really clamoring to just preserve old buildings. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. The story that kind of got me started on this was that one about New Zealand declaring a climate emergency. And I was like, oh, that's a good story. And then I actually read the article. <laughs> 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 so on the positive end of it, it says, uh, I'll just quote from the article. 
Ardern said the government sector will be required to buy only electric or hybrid vehicles, the fleet will be reduced over time by 20%, and all 200 coal-fired boilers used in the public services buildings will be phased out. And I'm like, okay, those are cool steps. But then later in the article, they basically say that New Zealand has done basically nothing on climate change so far. This is very toothless, and they'll need to do a lot more to meet their Paris agreements, especially since, like, the government sector isn't exactly responsible for most of their emissions. That would be uh, road transport and agriculture. So I was like, oh, great, a story about New Zealand. Everyone loves New Zealand this year, but it was very much tempered when I when I actually read the, the statistics. <laughs> I mean, there is a, I don't know if you saw, but Denmark this week said they're no longer going to license offshore oil and gas because it's inconsistent with climate change. So that is actually kind of good climate news. Yeah. Go Denmark. Well, I'm sure both of you will be able to fill in with, with good news as I go along here. So the next story that I have is of weather presenters in Australia, including climate change in their weather forecasts, huh. which helps, yeah, which really helps the public fill knowledge gaps and normalizes the discourse around the topic, which is really important because Australia is an outlier on climate action in that they are very bad at it. And the more the public thinks about it, maybe the better it'll be. But I'm sure any of our listeners from Australia will be the first to tell you that their government is very not much. Uh, they don't care about the environment so much. So it's it's good that at least their weather presenters are, are, are doing their part. <laughs> uh, there's a quote actually from the article that says, when it comes to who people trust on climate change, research has found that climate scientists are highest on the list, followed by farmers and firefighters. But fourth are weather presenters. So it's actually kind of a big deal that they include that information. They're very well trusted. Why do people trust farmers on climate change? That's so weird. <laughs> it's because they've got that almanac, Robbie. <laughs> oh. I couldn't tell you that's just what the statistics say. <laughs> I think people just inherently trust farmers because like um, everybody imagines like the ideal of a farmer and doesn't think about what farms actually are today, you know? Yeah, don't trust farmers. <laughs> Robbie, you worked on a farm. <laughs> You're the only farmer that we regularly have on the show, and you've appeared more than any other guest, so we obviously fall into that sucker category. Yeah, don't trust farmers. <laughs> okay, so I wrote in bold, this is supposed to be positive. Okay, great. So whatever's about to come next, I think, is probably not very positive. It's just a direct quote from an article. Uh, let me just see here. What is this? Oh, it's from the BBC. It's from their science and environment section. Oh, yuck. Okay, let's see what uh, let's see what the UK is up to. A new analysis seen by the BBC suggests the goals of the UN Paris Climate Agreement are getting within reach. Oh, so far so good. The Climate Action Tracker Group looked at new climate promises from China and other nations along with the carbon plans of U.S. President-elect Joe Biden. So far, so good. These commitments would mean the rise in world temperatures could be held to only 2.1 degrees Celsius by the end of this century. Yep, that's the positive news. Wonderful. <laughs> that's their optimistic uh, That's their optimistic guess. Previous estimates indicated up to 3 degrees of heating. So... That's if everybody meets their Paris targets, or uh, no, nobody's meeting their Paris targets, so they're not really including those in the <laughs> in the guesses because it's not realistic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so 
so basically they've looked at what, well, here, I'll just keep reading and we'll see what, I think I probably covered it. Let's see. In September, China's president told the UN that his country will reach net zero emissions by 2060 and that its emissions will peak before 2030. According to the CAT researchers, this could reduce warming by 0.2 uh, to 0.3 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. Japan and South Korea have both followed suit, pledging to reach net zero by 2050. South Africa and Canada have also announced their own net zero targets. We now have north of 50% of global emissions covered by big countries with a zero emissions by mid-century goal, uh, said some climate analyst. His name is Bill Hare. Good job, Bill. Uh, he helped lead the climate action tracker analysis. So he's kind of important, I guess, to this article. My bad. <laughs> I'm very drunk. <laughs> All I had to do was read this. I was like, that was some shade on a random climate scientist. No, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't write any of that down. I don't know. I'm just feeling sassy. Heartburn. Okay, I'm going to finish reading this. When you add all that up, along with what a whole bunch of other countries are doing, then you move the temperature dial from around 2.7 degrees Celsius to really quite close to 2 degrees. It's still a fair way off from the Paris Agreement target, but it is a really major development. There are countries that still remain bad actors, including Saudi Arabia, Brazil, Australia, Russia, and a few others. Australia, what a list to be included on. Like, y'all should be ashamed of yourselves. Write to your MPs. I know, you, I know you're <laughs> listening. So yeah, that was, uh, th that was supposed to be a positive news story where I was like, oh, oh, uh, you know, climate uh, targets within reach. And then I was like, oh, within reach of 2.1 degrees. That's very bad. Uh, Robbie, tell us what 2.1 degrees would look like by the end of the century. Well, this is this. Your section was very much we're looking in on little Timmy's family that couldn't afford food on Christmas Eve. Um, that's very much <laughs> the that I got from that segment. But yeah, just in terms of like a two point one world, that's uh, that's that Simpsons meme where Bart is like complaining, "This is the worst day of my life," and Homer goes to comfort him and says, "The worst day of your life so far." That's <laughs> what uh, two point one degrees is. Um, that's twenty twenty is the the best year of the next eighty. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, two degrees still means like Venice is underwater and like a bunch of shit. It's not gonna be yeah. Great. Yeah, two degrees is very bad. Two degrees, all the plankton might die. I think that's what a book I was reading was saying. <laughs> I, I saw that 50% uh, of the population of New Orleans lives below the sea level and they are not prepared for the sea level rise by the end of the century. So. Yeah, but it also means that like this year's historic wildfires are going to become like just normal. That's just every year. Yeah, I'm actually just Googling because I'm pretty sure the Amazon wildfires, even though we've not talked about them at all in 2020, like I'm pretty sure they were worse this year than they were in 2019. I can't find a specific thing, but they are they are bad this year also. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, fire season is just starting up in Australia. Speaking of... <laughs> yeah, something like 140 million mammals died last year, so... Oh. And uh, Australia's wildfire season is going to be starting up, but California's still has not ended. No. Actually, in California, they're talking about it not being a wildfire season so much as they're just always going to have wildfires. Um, so climate change is great and fun and not dystopian at all. I actually found a really cool Wikipedia entry on climate change opinions by country. So who thinks climate change is a serious problem versus like who doesn't? Looking at you, China, with your 18% of people who think it's a problem. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, I mean, we're not like, I think we're sitting at 51%. So can't cast too much shade. 
the last two points I have here are a little bit more positive, which is like shout out to Morocco and the Gambia, the only two countries in 2019 with a plan to reduce uh, CO2 emissions to a level consistent with limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. So, you know, big round of applause for those two countries. Yeah, I think the Gambia is going to be underwater, though, so they don't necessarily get altruism points. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at this point, I'll take just pure self-interest. Yeah, for yeah sure. I mean, whatever your motives are, I'll if it makes life better for other people so be it like with your story earlier Kristen you were yeah like, exactly it's like sure <laughs> I'm more like the person buying it is worried about get getting sick so they call for better rights for the people making the garment and therefore the the reasoning behind it is not altruistic but the result is so fine whatever yep fair call <laughs> and uh I'll allow it. Shout out to India, uh, who is investing more in renewable energy than it is in fossil fuels. They have a goal to generate 40% of their power from renewables by 2030. And it's it, the progress in that country is so rapid that they're on track to smash that target. Their plan is compatible with a two degree warming scenario and could be compatible with a 1.5 degree goal if they stopped building new coal fired power plants. My last little positive sort of not really <laughs> uh the Wall Street Journal estimated business travel will be reduced by between 19 and 36%, which would affect the airline industry big time because and this is a quote from that article, Bank of America estimates business trips contributed $334 billion to the entire travel industry's $1.1 trillion in revenue last year. So I did some quick math. A 30% reduction could cost the travel industry 10% of all revenue or $100 billion, which as somebody who does like working in the travel industry isn't great news, but eh, for emissions, maybe not so bad. It's actually a really complicated subject because like the top, I think, 10 to 15% of flyers subsidize the rest of us. So if you want to buy a cheap flight, you're getting it because a business class passenger is paying more because their business is paying for it. So cheap travel will be more difficult to come by and big trade routes like New York, London, Hong Kong, they're not going to get as many flights because there aren't as many business people traveling. So uh, travel might actually become more difficult for the rest of us, which I don't know, I guess that would be good for emissions too, but it's kind of a downer positives. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've already shut down a whole bunch of flights in Canada. Like if you're trying to get to Atlantic Canada now, <laughs> good fucking luck. <laughs> yeah, it's allowed to go to Atlantic Canada though haven't they closed their borders for the pandemic yeah I mean they've got like some quarantine rules but also just like um the Canadian airlines have decided that they're like you're, you're gonna have to take three flights if you want to get to like Fredericton or something gross but Robbie you said that you knew a bunch of other positive things that had happened this year please share <laughs> um I actually wanted to jump on that flight thing because yeah the top 15 percent of travelers might subsidize everyone else but airlines are like a perfect Pareto principle for emissions it's like the 20 percent most frequent flyers contribute of 80 percent of emissions yeah it was something like anyone who does more than six round trips a year like that class of people, contributes almost 80% of emissions. So it's one of the reasons that I actually think talking about like flight and travel guilt is really interesting because for the vast majority of people, like, yeah, if you take your one flight to go visit your grandparents um, once a year, like it's not a big deal. 
that's not really what's contributing. So it, I'm really stoked that a lot of the like business class flyers, because those are the ones who are mostly doing those like more than six trips a year is getting cut because that's going to be the massive reduction in emissions. Yeah. I'm just not sure how sustainable that is. Like, um, not, not in the environmental sense, but like, I feel like once the pandemic's over the, the, like business travel is going to shoot right back up. I don't think so. Cause I was looking like, I'll share this article and you guys can, you can peruse it, but they, they kind of went over a bunch of reasoning why they think that it's going to be permanently cut by at least 19%. And the arguments are pretty compelling. I mean, it, it, it's, it's more of a think piece. So it, it, it's all speculation. Nobody really knows what's going to happen, but the, the arguments they made are pretty solid. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it did cut quite a bit. Hmm. Well, that's good. Yeah. Fingers crossed. We'll work on the meat industry next. <laughs> well, dairy's already going down. Woo! Super stoked. Um, yeah, the the one the one cool thing that I wanted to make sure because we kind of like had it in our aside while we were taking a break was uh, yeah, there's 250 million people on strike in India right now, like farmers and workers. It's like a gigantic general strike happening in India, which is super cool. So yeah, India has really been like a bit of a grab bag in 2020 um, because like Narendra Modi is rapidly sliding into just all out ethno nationalist fascism. And then also they're doing some really good stuff on renewables apparently, and uh, have a really like vibrant workers movement. So. I mean like such a large society, you can't expect to have just one trend. So, but yeah, I feel like we don't devote enough attention to like the strike I had barely heard of and only because I follow a left-wing Twitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the only place I've seen any mention of it is just like, but it's super cool. So yeah, I guess I'll begin my segment as the ghost of Christmas future. Um, so the first thing that we will visit on our trip through Christmas futures is just a tombstone um, for the entire human species. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> we sat Optimistic, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> um, because that's that. Well, that's the Dickensian thing. Can, can I guess why we died? <laughs> uh, yeah, go for it. Was it antibiotics and chicken? No, it was climate change. Ah, it's gonna be my next guess. <laughs> that's the Dickensian version of Christmas future and what should scare people into it. Um, but I think that it's rather relevant that like a lot of people have watched the Christmas Carol probably in its like original form, not doctored by other like shows making parodies like the Muppets. <laughs> and, uh, this still has not convinced Jeff Bezos to stop being such a Scrooge. Um, so I'm starting to think that maybe the Dickensian vision of like, we can just scare the rich into not being awful is probably not how we're going to solve these problems. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk a little bit in terms of like envisioning the future, because that is actually something that we should be trying to do. And it's, it's quite challenging. And this is not the first time, actually, that someone has asked me to do this. Back for April Fool's for Edmonton's Extinction Rebellion chapter, um, we did like an April Fool's Day talk where I pretended to be a time traveler. <laughs> and it's, it's actually quite challenging because one of the, the difficulties in like this constant feeling of doom and dread that we have is that it's kind of difficult to imagine different futures. A lot of times we feel like we're locked into this sort of like inexorable machine of capitalist death drive that's just hurtling us all towards a cliff. So I think it's valuable to like dream about the future. And there's lots of like thinkers that have been really helping me to do that. Um, so I love to give out shout outs to like Murray Bookchin just constantly. <laughs> there was a great meme by the Institute of Social Ecology, which is a very funny Twitter account 
to follow, just talking about sort of like what they call the the millennial bloomer, which is, you know, trying to get out of this sort of like nihilistic death drive by reading theory that's actually uplifting and talks about alternative societies and how we get there. So I often think of that now that I'm just like, I'm trying to resist that very easy slide into being a doomer uh, and just being like, nope, you, we have to believe in the possibility of a future. And it's interesting how much that believing in a possibility of the future oftentimes looks like trying to pinpoint those moments in the past where we actually had like hope and how do we create similar conditions to that. Like Florence Kelly. <laughs> yeah. I was actually thinking about that the whole time that I was like, man, this is so much what I kind of wanted to talk about in the future was just that it's like, we need to hold out hope that it's like those kinds of dramatic changes are possible. And in five years, we don't actually know what the grassroots campaign in any given country is going to look like because a Florence Kelly of 2021 can come along and just completely change the ground game. That you have moments of cultural consciousness that just require sort of like a spark to really change how things are going. And I think those moments of cultural consciousness are starting to happen. One of the the weird things about the pandemic is that it really accelerated what a lot of people were already seeing, which is that there was sort of this movement away from Gen X and like Gen X's consumption habits. That, you know, most of the millennial men that I know don't own Gillette razors. They own like bougie, um, like safety razor kits um, that are like, you know, reusable and last for decades. But it's also things like sourdough and home canning and little like mutual aid networks that are about non-commercial exchange of goods. Like those are all things that people started to do during the pandemic because they had to. Um, but just because they did it because they had to in the pandemic doesn't mean that they're going to stop doing them once the pandemic is over and doesn't mean that people's visions on how they consume and what they consume don't change once they've been sort of like disconnected from the way that I lead my social life is going to the bar every weekend and stuff like that. And I think that actually has the potential to create some changes in how we view, how we view our consumption and how we view our lives. So maybe like that ends up being a silver lining that even if our governments continue to be utterly like recalcitrant and evil, that we create public consciousness around other ways of doing things, that people get a little bit more familiar with non-cash transactions and mutual aid networks. Um, so that when you go and tell someone, hey, we should do a mutual aid project and like help people out, they're more familiar with that than they were, you know, two years ago. Because that allows those kinds of like grassroots campaigns to happen is that the first, the groundwork is just like, do people even think that these kinds of things are possible? And more and more, they do think that like they have practice in doing things that are not just going to the supermarket and buying all of your needs. Um, because, you know, <laughs> people are starting to realize that like food shortages can still happen, that we can run out of toilet paper and other weird nonsense. That's like, um, so one of my earliest research projects was looking at, um, it was like an international trade research project. And one of the things that we we're looking into was like arguments around food sovereignty. And the professor that I was working with, um, brilliant guy, um, but very much an economist, you know, and so he was like, well, you know, you can just like come up with mutually advantageous exchange agreements and you should never need a country to have food sovereignty, right? Like, why would you need a country to be able to produce its own food? And it's like, well, 
sometimes wars happen or like other shit. (laughs) Sometimes pandemics happen and like shut down those mutually agreeable trades. Yeah. (laughs) Not everything can be explained through like neoliberal exchange frameworks. (laughs) (laughs) Shocking. But yeah, so it's, it is the possibility of things like that, that changes changes the future is that it's like the more people start to realize what's going on and the more people realize that it's possible to do things differently, the easier it is for someone like a Florence Kelly to come along. Because I think that was maybe one of the reasons why we see a lot of militancy in, this is very much just like me talking through a beer. <laughs> like maybe one of the reasons why there was so much more militancy around labor issues at the, like the turn of the 20th century was because there was still a bit more familiarity and a little bit more proximity to ways of production that weren't capitalism. Um, that now we've had a hundred years of just capitalist exploitation and Fordism and just like the complete destruction of the sort of idea of a tradesman and replacing them with contractors and you know drones and technology. That maybe the more we sort of like explore these ways of navigating the world through means that are not capitalist interactions, the more we can build up that familiarity and think of changes and differences as concrete possibilities, rather than just like weird things that theorists talk about in books. So it's one of the reasons that I've, I've been really like glad to get involved in mutual aid projects this summer. The more people are familiar with the concept of mutual aid, the less likely they are to be like, oh no, we need a market solution to this. It's like, no. We need a, a people-driven solution to this. Yeah, and I think it's just like um, the more you can build out spaces that aren't based on like transacting, the the more that's possible. That's something I've been thinking about more during this pandemic. Like, how many days can I go without spending money? Not as like a financial goal so much as just like it's nice not to pay for things in your life. You know, it's nice not to to feel like everything's a transaction. You can like you know, make dinner for a friend or like knit your own dish rag or something like that. Oh, which you did. (laughs) I sure did. It was hard, but now I know how to do it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, I spent a lot of time during the pandemic, like baking for friends or using my food dehydrator to like make preserve things or like preserve things and then trade them for bread and stuff like that from friends. Like, So yeah, the more we can get people introduced to ways of viewing the world that are not capitalist, the more that like, when we talk about a gift giving economy, when we talk about sustainable development, and people actually like living within the means of themselves and their and the planet around them. Like that sounds like very hippy dippy granola shit. And it sounded even more like that five years ago. But every year that people are out just like changing how people view things and the more experiences people have in those sort of like different modes of existing, the easier it is to like talk about those as serious solutions. And right now I'm like, I'm reading Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, which is a fantastic book, 10 out of 10, strongly recommend. And one of the things that that is really emphasized is that it's like there are still people around the world that do have that proximity to sort of like non-capitalist modes of production and the more and we can learn a huge amount from them just in terms of like having an imagination for what's possible for being able to diagnose some of the reasons why like we behave in the ways that we do is just like 
having plausible alternatives that we can turn to and say, yeah, these are people who like exist within that mode of being um, that can help us expand our horizons and think about a different world. Um, I think there's a lot of that sort of like imagination work that's happening. And I think that that's really cool and important. And then on the other hand, there's also just a lot of militancy that's happening around, you know, maybe people who don't have a clear idea of what the future looks like or should look like, but who view the present as just like fundamentally intolerable. I think that's one, I don't like leaning on that because it's really throwing the dice um, because if society collapses, it can either collapse into something good or it can just be absolutely awful. I've read Stephen King's The Stand. Yeah, yeah. I've said this before on the podcast, but I am 100% in for society because women tend not to do well under anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's like specifically just like complete chaos. Yeah, yeah. Not like anarcho-socialism if it ever happened. Uh <laughs> I don't know. Ursula Le Guin seemed like she had it figured out, but. <laughs> yeah, it's actually funny how often I like come back to that and realize I'll just like encounter an Ursula K. Le Guin quote in doing something that I'm doing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm really glad that I read those books as a teenager and not like Ayn Rand. <laughs> it had such a fundamental impact on how I view the world. And it's one of the things actually I really appreciate about Ursula K. Le Guin is that she did do a lot of that, like imagining what a society would look like that isn't the society we live in. That might be why I'm so like primed to think about that all the time is because I've like read all of her books uh, and loved every single one of them. Yeah, and it is like it's really important. I, I think like we're often quite constrained by what we think is possible, and um, I don't know. It's one of the things that I notice as um, a political scientist is like people's understandings of what's possible is really bounded in the period of time in which they've been alive. And so, like, when I'm teaching undergrads, <laughs> a lot of the time, I have to sort of, like, explain what governments did, like, before any of us were born in the room, you know? Um, and people are sort of amazed, like, oh, governments just ignored debt? Or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there was, like, a 90% tax on wealth? Like, we, we forget that um, the period of time that we're living in is... Like the rules that we have set up are changeable and they're changeable in much more drastic ways than we would think about normally. And the even the like theories we have that are set up by social scientists, like they're for the most part historically bounded in the last 50 years, you know, <laughs> like um, they don't cover a long period of time. And so we don't really know what's possible. Yeah, like I often think about, um, and this is, yeah, coming from Bookchin, who was a big fan of like Mesopotamia and sort of like Sumerian cultures, was that, you know, they had debt jubilees, which is something that is just like totally foreign to us now is that it's like we look at the United States that is just like eating itself alive over medical debt, student debt, and like hundreds of other kinds of debt. And it's like, yeah, you know, Back in other times, human beings decided that debt was really bad. And if you had debt at the end of the year, they would just forgive it. It would just disappear. And if you were a creditor who had lent someone money who couldn't repay you, well, that was your own damn fault. Like, <laughs> it's not the debtor's fault that they can't pay you back and you can't put them in jail. You can't evict them from their home. Um, if you gave a loan without you know due diligence to make sure you'd get it back, like, sorry, buddy, that's your loss. Like, that's that's doing business. Uh, and they would just have debt jubilees and all the debt would disappear. And you're like, that actually sounds really sensible. Like 
the United States can't even fathom like loan forgiveness of one particular kind of debt when other societies in the past have just been like, you know what? Debt's stupid. It's gone now. <laughs> Debt <Come> is <on>. stupid. <laughs> yeah. So it's like looking back to those and like, yeah, like braiding sweetgrass has been very good for talking about sort of, or for giving me more information about like how to, how indigenous cultures dealt with economy and feeding people and the relationships with land and each other. And it's like, yeah, these are, these are not just like weird historical artifacts um, or things that belong in the dustbin of history before it ended. Um, well done, Francis Fukuyama. Really screwed the pooch on that one. Uh, <laughs> history has definitely not ended, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, but these are, they are relevant and things that can be brought into the world that we live in, both as ways to resist capitalism, but also as ways to sort of like create constructive alternatives to it. And so it's like, that's what I like to think about in terms of, you know, what does consumption look like in 2050, assuming it's not just a tombstone, is, you know, people look at harvests as something that they do in communion with land rather than as just like a way to extract value from soil. Um, I think that's something fascinating. Like I look forward to a world where it's like people view food as something that they are capable of growing themselves that like even in cities there are opportunities to grow food and have food sovereignty for communities. Uh, see, like, um, I'm curious, Robbie, just sort of reacting to that. What are your thoughts about cell cultured meat? Because um, on one hand, huge climate change potential, and on the other hand, in stark opposition to the ideals you just expressed. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, uh, I'll digress. A little bit. Um, the first time that I was like interacting with Murray Bookchin's work and and his lectures, like because he was very anti-futurist, like he has specific rants about how much he hates the idea of everyone living in these like big, technologically advanced glass like megapolises and stuff like that, and he just thinks that it's absolutely miserable and awful. And I was like, oh, I don't like this Murray Bookchin character. I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, and the the more that I sort of like sit in. Uh, what does like a good world look like? The more I'm like, oh yeah, actually maybe we shouldn't let technology mitigate every single one of our interactions with the world. Like maybe it's fine to sometimes do things analog. Um, so I have a fundamental revulsion against lab-grown meat <laughs> on, on those grounds, um, which really makes me sound like such a freaking hippie. <laughs> There's also, I am a, like my knowledge of cell culture is maybe a little bit dated because like I'm not, I wasn't at the cutting edge of that kind of stuff. But one of the things that's important to remember is that like cells are not immortal in the lab unless you do some really weird things to them that tend to change how they behave. So it's actually very difficult to grow like real meat tissue in the lab because you constantly need to feed it new stem cells. So it's not really a way to create like slaughter-free lab meat. You're really just sort of like you slaughter a small number of animals to produce far more meat than they would have produced on their like normal fleshy coils. That might be different for certain kinds of meat. Like I know that there was a patent just released in Singapore that was actually slaughterless, but that's only because they're making like chicken ground. Because when you immortalize a cell line, it tends to not stick well to other cells. It doesn't like grow like a tissue because you fundamentally make it cancerous. Um, so you can't grow something like a slab of steak in a lab using immortalized cells, but turns out you can grow it in enough of a little like globule that it has approx like it approximates ground chicken. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say South Korea just approved, uh, 
lab-grown chicken for that reason, but but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think it is it is far more limited than a lot of the sort of people being like lab-grown meat will save meat eating. Hurrah! It's like no, it'll maybe replace like one or two specific kinds of meat, but otherwise will be largely irrelevant. Yeah, I also just like just fucking eat plants. <laughs> You know what, Robbie? We're going to bring you back for a lab-cultured meat episode. Yes. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's it's very, yeah, lab-grown meat was something that I was super keen about many years ago. And then I went vegan and was like, yeah, just eat plants. And now I'm increasingly becoming a bit of like a, I guess, a hippie, I suppose, is what people <laughs> would call it. And I'm just like, ah, it's grown in a lab. I don't like that. <laughs> Are you sure that's you being a hippie and not just you being somebody who hated his RA job? <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah maybe actually that's where my revulsion against the lab comes from <laughs> yeah it's very weird um i mean like if it really is slaughter free like sure that's cool i guess but it is interesting actually to think about those sort of like different visions of the future because it is something we have to deal with is that it's like there are people who just like will fully embrace the idea that technology will save us but then you get weird things like people couldn't access their homes because their like digital integrated security system server went down and so they couldn't unlock their doors and you're like is technology really all that great <laughs> like there are moments like that where we have to deal with that and then it's like yeah technology has allowed us to like dramatically improve our lives we can't live without it we can't exactly go full full bore on just like total eco primitivism because that ends up being eugenics. It's finding a, a balance. Yeah, so it's about, yeah, exactly. It's navigating that balance between different possibilities for the future. But the more that we spend time debating about those possibilities, the realer they feel, like the realer they get to be. So our call to action this week is to start a global movement that <laughs> <laughs> pulls together. A uh, general strike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think... At least the call to action from the ghost of Christmas future uh, is to spend some time like dreaming and familiarizing yourself with non-capitalist modes of production and like existence. So return all the Christmas gifts you just bought. No, <laughs> buy uh, more. Buy more Christmas gifts. Just make them be books. <laughs> Lex would really want us to say that one of those books should be Sweetness and Power. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, yeah. We have a whole reading list on our website. People can check out, and we'll add Braiding Sweetgrass to it because I also really want to read that book. It's on my it's on my reading list. Love it. Any final thoughts? Well, I'm trying to think of what a Ghost of Christmas Past call to action would be. Uh, Stan Florence Kelly. Yeah, but I think everyone who's listened to this episode is already doing that. <laughs> <laughs> the Ghost of Christmas Present's call to action is yikes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got a good one. I got a good one. This has nothing to do with ethical consumption, but my sister has shared with me many TikToks of a dude that measures people's heights. So if you have not seen those, go find them. Yes. <laughs> yes. There you go. Perfect. Endorsed by everybody. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that was our uplifting episode of the year. <laughs> I hope everybody feels much happier than they did at the beginning. I do, but it's because I finished another glass of wine. So 
To our listeners, thank you for sticking around. Uh, we <laughs> really appreciate it. Actually, this is a uh, one year now since we've been since we've been doing this podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you to the people who've been asking for a Patreon. You know, shout out there. We're working on something. I, I, I'm teasing something. There's nothing yet, but we're thinking about it. So we'll we'll get back to you guys in the new year. If we get like three more people that ask us for a Patreon, we'll do it. Yes, three people reach out to us who haven't and, and offer to give us money, and we'll get <laughs> we'll get that going. <laughs> Start a Patreon. Yeah, Robbie counts. Robbie counts. He's gonna he's gonna pay us in onions though. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Cannot express how much I hate farming. <laughs> This is not to do with anything, but I hate onions. I hate onions. <laughs> it's a useful thing to know. Yeah, Robbie, you need to, you need to get, don't send the gift we were talking about sending to Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll ask that. <laughs> Canceled.